welcome to the Maritime Podcast. You are listening to Gary Howard, Europe Editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. Today we have an in-focus episode on the case of the Nederland Reefer, which I'll be discussing with Chalice & Co. PC Associate Attorney Britton Sparkman. Today we're going to join together US enforcement of Marpol, come across a wonderful term like unreviewable discretion, and a debate over how salty or sandy a legal issue is. Britain will be talking to us about the case of Nederland Reefer, which touches on US Admiralty jurisdiction, vessel detention, and the value of surety bonds and agreements on security. I started by asking Britain about the United States enforcement of Marpol. I think it's important to understand what was going on at the time that Marpol 73, through its amendments in 78, were coming out. And really, there was a recognition among the international community that we need to do something to strengthen the way that international shipping and our waters are monitored. An interesting thing about Marpol, right? It's a treaty that's been signed onto by nearly every nation in the world, but it's not self-executing, right? So then that leaves to the various signatories the rights and obligation to create some sort of domestic law or other procedure by which they're going to apply Marpol, such as it were, in their local jurisdictions. One of the interesting things with respect to the United States for ratification of the Marpol Treaty was that back in 1973, EPA Executive Director Russell Train appeared before Congress and gave testimony throughout the course of several hearings with respect to Marpol. And at that time, he shared that uh, the United States, as when the treaty was being negotiated, had strongly urged a provision whereby port states would have been authorized to prosecute with respect to foreign ships in their ports for violations committed on the high seas. But ultimately, that concept was rejected. So when you look at the initial goals of MARPOL and its ultimate enforcement, the idea was twofold. One, that the flag state administrations would have responsibility for their vessels and seafarers licensed under their administration for the purposes of enforcement in international waters or literally anywhere that the vessel may be located. And port states would be responsible for making sure the ships, foreign flagships coming into their ports are following local rules and they have some measure of comfort with respect to enforcement for any kind of spills, whether accidental or intentional, in their own waters or exclusive economic zones. Ultimately, the United States passed the Act to Prevent Pollution from Ships. And what makes it a couple of distinguishing features that APPS has compared to other MARPOL enforcement regimes around the world. One is that they include a whistleblower provision, which provides for the ability for someone who reports a violation of MARPOL to receive up to half of the fine that may be imposed. The second thing is that through 33 USC 1908A, they have made any violation of MARPOL or the regulations thereunder a Class D felony. So while most countries around the world have some version of criminal prosecution with respect to either negligent or intentional discharges of oil or other hazardous materials that are prohibited in their own waters, the United States is really the only country that has made it a point to make sure to try and enforce criminally 
any violations of discharges abroad uh, in international waters. And you might ask, well, how can they do that? So they do it through record-keeping statutes. And so the regulations they're under, so part of APPS is actually um, what gives them that authority. They've passed some Coast Guard and local uh, federal regulations, which require an oil record book to be maintained while in U.S. waters. A lot of litigation over what that framework means. Um, but ultimately, courts have come down on the side of the U.S. government and said that when a oil record book is false, either by omission or commission, with respect to the entries that are contained therein, then that's a crime in the United States. It's not actually criminalizing the pollution or the intentional dumping out on the waters, but the presentation of the oil record book to the Coast Guard during a port state control inspection. That's interesting. And just perhaps for listeners outside of the US, where does a class D felony compare to other crimes in the US? It's a serious crime, but it is the lowest of the felonies um, on when you're talking about scale for organizational defendants um, that leads to a uh, fine of up to $500,000 and a period of probation of up to uh, five years. For individual defendants, including uh, seafarers, that can lead to um, a fine of up to $250,000 or a period of, I believe, the incarceratory sentences range from between six months and uh, five or six years. But most seafarers in the actual prosecutions, most have received terms of probation. Um, there have been several chief engineers and some masters that have been given a incarceratory sentence, and those typically range between six months and a year. Wow. Okay. So when we move to a violation and say a ship is held, what's the significance of the enforcement of the security agreement? Is this in any way negotiable or can it be challenged? Right. So... Most of the listeners will be familiar with the fact that when a port state authority comes on board a vessel, they have the right to inspect records, documents, those types of things. In the United States, if the Coast Guard finds uh, some evidence or they receive a whistleblower report of what they believe to be a violation of MARPOL or the regulations they're under, then they have the right pursuant to apps to withhold the vessel's departure clearance, which is a required uh, document from the Customs and Border Protection Agency in order for foreign flagships to leave the jurisdictional waters of the United States. So what that means is they can actually keep a ship detained for the purposes of a further investigation related to a suspected violation until what's called satisfactory surety to the secretary is posted. And that has been an evolving target over the years. But uh, in its most recent form, it has taken the form of uh, what we call a security agreement or agreement on security. The agreement on security sets forth uh, numerous rights and obligations, almost all of them uh, onerous on owners and operators. Um, and it includes not only the requirement for the posting of a monetary surety, either in the form of a bond or a cash remittance, but um, also uh, various non-monetary terms that have to be complied with. The most significant of which is um, the 
the United States requiring crew members who they believe are targets or witnesses to the alleged activity being required to remain within the federal U.S. district where the ship is located. And so in addition to those crew members being detained in the area and required to depart and disembark from the vessel, they are also the owner and operator on the hook for paying for these guys throughout the time that they're in the United States. Their total wages under the contract, continued coverage for health insurance, as well as uh, reasonable lodging and a daily per diem. So it can be quite expensive when you're talking about an entire engine room complement, as well as a master and sometimes other crew members as well. Typically on the agreement on security, uh, the required detained seafarers range from seven to 13 guys. Um, there is no time limit as to uh, the agreement on security. So in many cases, um, unless the crew members start taking advantage of the court process and challenging their continued detention, they can remain in the United States for um, a year to two years um, before they're actually permitted to depart. So it's it's quite a an expansive agreement. Um, and <laughs> agreement is misleading because it is a top-down document that comes from Coast Guard headquarters. And there's very little that's negotiable. Really, the only things that are negotiable are um, the quantum of the actual uh, surety bond. And sometimes there is negotiation on the amount of per diem uh, paid per day. But other than that, um, everything that's in there is, is a take it or leave it uh, type approach. A classic government agreement. Um, I'm sure that raises quite a few questions for our listeners, but I think as we move on, a lot of them will be answered. So could you take our listeners through the Nederland Reefer case? I think we'll, uh, that'll shed a lot of light on the implications of these rules. Sure. So one of the things that comes up and, and has uh, come up over the past 10 years is when presented with this agreement on security, um, should an owner and operator take it? Or should they simply leave the vessel um, in the jurisdiction during the pendency of the government's investigation? Um, there are no court resources available for the purposes of challenging the terms under the agreement on security. It had been challenged um, quite a few times in various district courts. And um, it was a, a good stick, right? Because it was a colorable argument that, uh, oh, these terms are onerous and the court should set a bond. And so a lot of times uh, by filing such a challenge, it would get the government to, you know, kind of come to the table and, and work something out versus risking an adverse decision. Ultimately, this challenge portion was put to bed by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in a case in 2013, wherein they said that the Coast Guard, as the agency tasked with handling these matters, had unreviewable discretion in the course of setting the security agreement and the surety bond. And so what does that mean? It means that a, no federal judge is going to step in and say, well, you should take this amount of a bond or you should only keep this number of seafarers or really these other terms should be struck. Um, but they did mention uh, in that case that, well, a ship owner and operator do have the benefit under apps, um, which took from Marpol, the right to compensation for unreasonable delay or detention. And so they can have an after the fact remedy 
Um, but during the course of the process, there's no ability to engage with having a judge review the agreement on security. So what does that mean in context for the Nederland Reefer case? Since that decision in the Fourth Circuit in 2013, owners and operators that have been faced with whether to post and sign an agreement on security have had to look at, well, does it make sense to get the ship back into service and agree to all of these terms, even though um, it's quite expensive and we're going to be waiving a lot of rights? Or should we simply leave the vessel in the jurisdiction where it's at and see what happens? Most owners and operators take the decision to reluctantly agree to the agreement on security because getting the ship back trading is obviously a powerful and important responsibility. And in fact, a lot of owners and operators don't even have the luxury of making a choice, right? If you're talking about ships that are part of a fleet or um, have some other uh, loan facility or mortgage obligations with respect to having a ship being traded and not under uh, arrest, attachment, or detention, they're between a rock and a hard space, right? So with respect to the Nederland Reefer, she didn't have those pulls on her in the context of, well, we've got to get her out because of an obligation to some third party. But she did have um, a lucrative uh, fruit trade that she was engaged in and chartering obligations that needed to be met. So ultimately, the owners and, and managers uh, agreed to post uh, the required surety amounts and agreed to have the crew members requested by the U.S. government come off the vessel in the District of Delaware. That was, I think in total, there were 13 guys who were required by the U.S. government to disembark. Okay, and so what happened next? So what happened next was the agreement on security was ultimately signed and agreed and the, and the bond was posted, and that happened on or about uh, March 8th of 2019. And the agreement is between the United States uh, Coast Guard on behalf of the United States and the owner and operator of the vessel. The individual crew members who are required to remain in the district are not parties to the agreement on security, but um, it does contain carve-outs for them to exercise their own rights um, with respect to being required to remain, um, being required to give up their passports, and generally the restrictions on their movement. What normally happens when an agreement on security is signed and the bond is posted is that there is an expectation that the crew members will come off the vessel immediately with respect to the requirements of the agreement on security as soon as their replacements are on board. Um, and so that is what historically has always happened, um, but it didn't happen here. If you're enjoying listening, make sure you never miss an episode of the Maritime Podcast by subscribing on the app of your choice. Why were the crew held on the vessel? This gets really in the weeds of government agency interrelation, right? But when you have a foreign seafarers, the seafarer visa, even if they hold a U.S. visa, has various limitations, including the fact that you're 
going to be using that visa just for the purposes of traveling from destination to destination in order to embark and disembark from vessels. So for the purposes of uh, foreign nationals coming into the United States, they need some other sort of immigration status in order to be able to come off the vessel and then stay in the jurisdiction. You might think since the government through the U.S. Coast Guard is the entity requiring these individuals to stay, that that should be a fairly uh, straightforward process. And most times it is, but in this case, it turned out not to be. And ultimately, the uh, there was disagreement among the different agency and agency heads with respect to the processing of these uh, crew members. Normally, what happens is the Customs and Border Protection Agency, which is a division of Homeland Security, as is the U.S. Coast Guard, will take the crew members and process them for the purposes of the, their, their parole into the United States. And they'll issue what's known as a temporary parole and then ultimately a public benefit parole, which allows them to then stay in the United States. Here, the district commander for the Customs and Border Protection Agency was unwilling to grant said temporary parole and instead only was willing to grant the crew members uh, the access to the United States and to come off the vessel once permanent public benefit parole packages had been completed, filled out, and approved from uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, and various officials that needed to sign off on it in Washington, D.C. This led to the crew members being retained on board for an additional 19 days while that process was taking place. And so it was definitely an unexpected event um, as compared to every other agreement on security that had been done up until that point. But it certainly led to big issues with respect to the trading of the vessel, which was now at serious risk for missing her next cargo and ultimately did miss her next cargo from South America. And ultimately, the season that she was trading in came to a conclusion before she was permitted to depart the jurisdiction. I can just imagine the frustration of general sort of international bureaucracy around maritime and then coming to this issue in the US and finding a whole other layer of bureaucracy within the US to deal with. So this 19-day delay where these temporary paroles didn't come through, obviously the crew had to remain on the vessel, so the vessel couldn't sail. What was the reason given for that delay, why those temporary um, paroles didn't come through? Well, the wonderful thing about the United States government is that they don't give you answers to things. So it was uh, stonewall silence from the deputy area port director um, and the area port director for the Customs and Border Protection Agency, as well as silence from the U.S. Coast Guard and all the points of contact that had been uh, responsible for negotiating and signing the agreement on security. Now, the agreement had various uh, terms and conditions contained therein, including an agreement by the United States to expedite and use all reasonable steps to make things with respect to the investigation and the ongoing prosecution go fast, right? For lack of a better word. And here you had a huge delay 
that was caused simply by an unwillingness to process the applications for the guys that the government themselves wanted to remain in the United States. Now, one other thing that I think is interesting, right? I mean, these are individuals who are law-abiding seafarers. We're not talking about folks that have a criminal history or past. They've been uh, vetted for the purposes of obtaining U.S. visas uh, and have freely traveled in and out of the United States. They've freely traveled around the world, right? I mean, so the fact that there was this huge delay so that they could basically do the paperwork shuffle was a super big issue and and ultimately a a huge headache um, that led to significant uh, costs, fees, expenses, and damages for the owners and and operators. Not to mention the, you know, mental and uh, stress for the crew members, right? They're told, okay, you're going to come off the ship and then they don't come off the ship and they're sitting there. And it was a lot of unknowns and a lot of lack of information, a little bit like the Wizard of Oz, right? You don't get to see the wizard. You don't get to see the decision-making. And then ultimately, a decree comes from down on high saying, okay, now they can come off the vessel. But there'd been no real demonstrative change for anything between that time. Yeah, I think one thing you might not want from entities that have things like unreviewable discretion and can hand out these uh, these agreements that you definitely agree to, silence is not necessarily what you want from them over that over that kind of uh, that kind of issue and that kind of length of time. But moving on a bit, can these security agreements be seen as a maritime contract calling for admiralty jurisdiction? Right. So that was the challenge. Right. So here, what we had was once the crew members came off, the vessel did ultimately sail. But now the owners and operators are looking around and saying, well, we didn't get the benefit of our bargain. We signed something that's called an agreement. It had certain obligations and rights. And we complied with all the terms on our side of it. The United States didn't comply. So ultimately, they filed a petition for recovery, for a breach of the agreement on security, to declare the agreement void and obtain return of the surety, monetary surety. And they also moved under PAPS for the statutory compensation claim for unreasonable delay. Some of the arguments that we ran with respect to the agreement on security and identifying for the district court why we believed that the court had jurisdiction was because this was an admiralty contract, right? So for listeners who aren't familiar with the U.S. legal system, the federal courts are courts of what we call limited jurisdiction. But one, meaning you can't just walk in there for any any type of dispute, but one carve-out where the federal courts have exclusive jurisdiction is for admiralty and maritime claims. It has not always been an easily definable proposition as to what constitutes a maritime contract. But here we argue that, look, it's an agreement with the United States that contains numerous references to maritime terms. You're talking about providing a surety bond to serve as substitute rests for the vessel, something that 
everyone uh, listening will be familiar with when you took when you have vessels that are arrested or attached around the world, right? So uh, substitute security is something that we're very familiar with. The surety bond also served to substitute security for in rim claims against the vessel. Uh, the vessel owners and operators had agreed to continue to pay total wages for crew members, including guaranteed overtime. Uh, there was also an agreement to repatriate the detained uh, crew members. There was an agreement between the owner operator and the United States that any criminal or civil penalty claims of the U.S. against the vessel in rim would attach to the vessel's security as provided and specifically referenced the federal, the supplemental admiralty rules under the federal rules of civil procedure, which is located at E5. And that's, you know, the rule that talks about when you post a bond, it stands in the place of a ship. The agreement also had uh, the telltale language um, that uh, listeners will have seen in pretty much every uh, surety bond or LOU or other type of uh, guarantee or obligation that in consideration for the posting of the security, the United States agreed not to cause the arrest of the vessel nor the arrest, seizure, or attachment of any other vessel owned, operated, managed, or chartered by the owner or operator for the alleged violations and not to withhold CBP departure clearance of the vessel. So in our view, it was clear, right? You had an agreement between two sides and there were all these maritime terms and conditions. And so we argued to the district court that the agreement on security is clearly a maritime contract. And therefore, district judge, you have admiralty jurisdiction to determine the rights and liabilities of the parties for the breach of contract claim. Ultimately, the court didn't agree with our arguments and sided with the government in the first instance. And the district judge dismissed the case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, claiming that there was no waiver of sovereign immunity by the United States in the contract and that there was no admiralty jurisdiction. Um, because as he viewed it, the principal objective of the agreement was to permit the ship's departure clearance while preserving the government's ability to investigate the crimes that were alleged. And so he said that the agreement on security as such didn't relate to a ship in its use or to commerce or navigation or navigable waters or to transportation by sea or to maritime employment. And so he uh, dismissed the case outright. Um, but that wasn't the end of the story. Did it sort of undermine the value of the agreement not to detain or not to withhold the CBP release? if there was a, another sort of effective means of detaining by not allowing the crew to leave the US? Well, absolutely. I think you've hit on the head uh, exactly, right? I mean, this is already an agreement that's one-sided and not subject to much negotiation. One of the things we didn't talk about earlier, but has always been clear, is that the government doesn't negotiate on the number or which crew members are it is going to detain. And so by having a, a departure clearance not reinstated promptly um, as a result of the government's own inability to comply with its obligations under the agreement on security was quite frustrating. And it exacerbated by, by the fact that 
the district court said, well, there's nothing we can do with it because there's no jurisdiction for me to review this. But yet the agreement on security specifically calls for any disputes to be heard before the district court in the District of Delaware. So it, it was quite perplexing and quite frustrating to get such a result because it seemed to fly in the face of what the Fourth Circuit had said all those years earlier, right? Which was, well, you can't tell them what agreement to give you or not to give or not give you. They have unreviewable discretion. But once you have an agreement, um, you've got rights uh, under the statutes and, uh, and under the agreement to uh, get an after the fact remedy. So yeah, definitely you're on the right track with, well, it can't possibly be that they can now sign an agreement and then still not comply with it and blame some other uh, procedural process for the delay. Okay, Britain, I think we've, we've covered quite a lot of detail so far. So it's time that we, we move on to the, the decision of the Third Circuit Court in the Netherlands Reefer case. Yeah, well, the Third Circuit got it 100%. So we don't actually have to go back over all those details that I talked about with, with the agreement on security. We argued at the Third Circuit that there was error by the district court because clearly these terms implicated um, various maritime aspects. The Third Circuit, in a nutshell, held that it, first it summarized the, the party's contentions, right? And the, the, they can simply be stated in the following sentences. For the government, it was allow the criminal proceedings to continue to conclusion, including the payment of any potential criminal penalty. And for the owners, it was, well, this purpose of this agreement is to provide sufficient security to obtain the vessel's departure clearance so it can continue its trade. And the Third Circuit held, well, both contentions are true, but the government ignored every interest but its own and failed to acknowledge that the crime under investigation was itself particularly maritime in character. And here's the holding. Uh, it was ultimately, a, I think, a, a 20, 25-page decision. But the holding comes down to this. The essential character and purpose of the agreement was not to secure the vessel and crew in port. That was already done. The primary objective of the agreement was rather to set the reefer free to pursue maritime commerce. And I think ultimately what that decision means and how it's useful for the industry was that all the prior challenges ultimately weren't in vain. So in those, you know, legal issues come up uh, sparingly and have quite a bit of time in order for real change to occur in the law, right? When you're talking about common law and judge-made law. But the Third Circuit built on what the Fourth Circuit had said. And in particular, the fact that, well, if you wanted to just preserve the vessel in port to and preserve the witnesses in port to continue your investigation, you already have that discretionary right. There's no obligation to provide terms for an agreement. There's no obligation to provide a bond quantum that you will accept. We've already held in the federal court system that the Coast Guard has unreviewable discretion. So you've got your vessel and it's there. Um, but once you do sign an agreement on security and you do agree to terms, well, then you got to honor them. And so ultimately, the court made that general ruling that 
over that was encompassing that the purpose was to get the vessel back out into trade and then relied on several other maritime cases to find that there was a genuine salty flavor to the agreement on security and specifically referred to numerous cases where courts had found that there was admiralty jurisdiction when we're talking about the posting of substitute security agreements in a civil context because the contract uh, was focused on providing some sort of substitute security in the form of an LOU or a bond or a cash remittance in exchange for delivery of cargo, exchange for vessel being able to trade, um, all of which are not merely contract to contribute to settlements of maritime claims, but are ultimately have an effect on maritime commerce and trade. And so that's where the Third Circuit was focused, and that's where they found that this agreement on security was a maritime contract. I'm really relieved that you used the term salty there, as I thought we were going to get through the podcast without it coming up. And it's sort of the <laughs> my favorite term to come up as I've been uh, investigating this. Uh, so I, I guess moving on to our end point, what's the, the significance of the decision and uh, what sort of precedent does it set for future cases? Well, I think the significance is very important, right? So it gives further ability for a owner and operator to have access to the courts to challenge government overreach, right? I mean, there is now a clear-cut path forward anytime that an agreement on security is um, signed to actually sue in the district court to hold the government's feet to the fire to make sure that they comply with the obligations they're under. Now, um, one thing that we didn't talk, we didn't mention previously, but went into the Third Circuit's decision making was there were at least two other cases where parties filed lawsuits on challenging various terms under an agreement on security after the fact, right? And in those cases, the government didn't challenge the jurisdiction of the court. Now, federal district and appellate courts are tasked with making sure themselves that they have jurisdiction, even if a party doesn't raise it. So while not dispositive of the issue, the Third Circuit certainly felt like it was important that the District of Columbia and the District of Columbia Appeals Court, which had heard those other prior cases, um, had found that they had jurisdiction, even though the government had never challenged it when talking about a dispute under the agreement on security. I think one of the things that's going to be interesting for the industry moving forward is what's going to happen with future agreements on security. Since this decision came out in November of 2021, we haven't seen many material changes to the agreement on security as have been proposed by various U.S. Coast Guard legal districts around the country. But I won't be surprised if we start to see some changes in an attempt by the government to avoid future lawsuits, right? I mean, you can't contract for federal judicial jurisdiction, but you certainly can create terms which either rise to a maritime contract or not. So it won't be surprising if in a future iteration, there is an attempt to make all of the 
rights, terms, and obligations on the agreement on security more land-based and uh, more sandy than salty, as it were. I wasn't aware of sandy as the uh, sort of opposite of salty. I'm learning something new every day. I'm sure these things move quite slowly, but it'll be interesting to see how those security agreements do change. And we'd love to have you back if things do change to see how it all panned out. But for now, Britain, thanks so much for your time and for joining us on the Maritime Podcast. <laughs>